This morning's reading is from Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, which can be found on page 584 of your Black Bible. Before I read, please bow your heads to pray with me. Father God, thank you for the scriptures, that they equip us, your people, for every good work. Open our hearts and minds and speak to us through Pastor Jim this morning. May we be changed as a result of hearing your word preached. Amen. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. If you uh, don't have your Bibles open to page 584, you'll want to do that as we take a close uh, look at this passage today, especially the, the first four verses. In this season, uh, we're considering some, considering some key texts from the, the second half of the book of Isaiah that form the identity and the, and the mission of Jesus. And you'll remember that this part of Isaiah records words of comfort uh, for the Jews uh, who were in exile. And Isaiah promises that God's people, in the midst of their suffering and all that's happened to them, that God has a purpose in it all, that they remain his people, and he will redeem them. And he'll he'll not only do this uh, for his people Israel, but uh, for the whole world, that he will bring peace and justice to the nations. And in these chapters, and especially in uh, chapters 40 to 55, we find this mysterious person called the servant. Uh, The servant who stands at the center of the Lord's purposes and his promises. And there are four passages uh, in Isaiah where the the servant is especially prominent. And over the next four weeks, Mike and I uh, will be looking at each one of these. And today we're considering this first one in Isaiah 42, uh, the calling of the servant. And before we look more closely at uh, this, though, let me just remind you of what we saw two weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 61. It was there we saw that Jesus 
in his first public preaching in his hometown of Nazareth, he used Isaiah 61 to identify himself. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, today we see this, again, this emphasis on justice is a part of uh, this message and mission, that the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. Uh, 42 verse 1, or verse 3 he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Think about this again. Jesus says that these things were going to happen, were happening in him and through him. You know, it's one thing to take on an injustice in in Madison, let's say, or, or on campus, or even to work for some kind of reform in our country in some area of wrong. I think of maybe mass incarceration. Or, or to march for a cause. You know, it's one thing to do those things. Or, or if you have the resources of someone like Bill Gates, you might take on a focused issue, like eradicating malaria in the developing world. That might seem possible. But, but Jesus really seemed to believe that he was here to bring justice, healing, wholeness, shalom, not just to Nazareth or Palestine, but to the whole world. Let me just say that if you're here today and you're wondering uh, whether Christianity is, is really true, you know, how, how do you figure that out? I mean, there are a lot of good questions to ask and things uh, that need to be explored about what Christians believe, about the history of the church. There are important things to wrestle with about ethics and life. But most of all, let me suggest that you have to figure out what you think about the person of Jesus. Was he whom he claimed to be? Because if the answer is yes, then it impacts everything else. So let's consider Isaiah's servant today with this question in mind. What does this teach us about Jesus? There are three areas where we learn something important. We learn something about the identity of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus, and the power of Jesus. First, the the identity of Jesus. I'm in the middle of a novel uh, by Tom Wolfe called I Am Charlotte Simmons. It was published in 2004 about a freshman college student and her experience of uh, going to school. Wolf researched the novel by talking to students at the University of North Carolina, the University of Florida, uh, Penn, Duke, Stanford, the University of Michigan. Sorry, I did not see the University of Wisconsin on his list, but he easily uh, could have made that a part of his research project, I'm sure. And he rolls all the experiences of students into one school that he calls DuPont. And the story of the book, uh, I Am Charlotte Simmons, is the story of this bright young uh, woman, a freshman, 
who's from a small town in North Carolina, and she goes to DuPont on a full scholarship with great ac academic aspirations, only to discover that what really matters at DuPont is sex and status and sports. And she has to learn how to navigate this new world, uh, relationships with other students, uh, the parties, uh, the expectations of her professors. And throughout the book, this phrase, I am Charlotte Simmons, is kind of a mantra that she repeats to herself as she tries to hold on to her identity. Right? Even, as she, even as she becomes more and more uncertain about it, she says, but I am Charlotte Simmons. She's trying to hold on to something of her past and her family and her values. And I was thinking about the experience of Charlotte Simmons uh, this week and, and Jesus uh, as he came to his calling and his purpose in the world. I mean, obviously Jesus lived in a very different time and place than our own, but he faced his own pressures and, and temptations, and the, the scriptures record some of those for us. Now, where did his sense of calling come from? How did he hold on to his identity? Well, I think Isaiah 42, uh, verse 1, shows us. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And the, these words echo throughout the New Testament. At his baptism, at the baptism of Jesus, we're told that as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then again at, at the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, we're told that a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I love. Or Luke says, whom I have chosen. With him I am well pleased. So the foundation of Jesus' life was the delight of the Father. Before he did anything, Jesus knew that he was accepted and loved. He didn't have to earn the Father's love. The pattern of his life was not, first, lead a remarkable teaching and healing ministry, and second, hear God's blessing. God gives voice to his pleasure in baptism before Jesus' public ministry has begun. It's the same at the, at the end of Jesus' life. The pattern was not, first, go to the cross, suffer and die, and then know the Father's pleasure. The Father declares his love on the Mount of Transfiguration at this key moment before Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem to go to the cross. The, the love of God was the motivating power for everything that Jesus did. Every healing miracle, every word of forgiveness, every act of sacrifice. So, first thing that we learn is that for Jesus to have the calling of the servant of Isaiah was first about this relationship 
with his father. This was his deepest identity. This is what he came back to throughout his life. And, and, and out of this identity, out of this calling, flowed an attitude towards others. Uh, we hear this attitude in the servant in verses 2 and 3. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. Now, you might think that Jesus, you know, he had these exalted claims that he was making about himself. You would think that that would lead to an attitude of pride or, or self-importance or, or arrogance. You'd think you'd get just a, a hint of that, maybe. But instead, in everything he said and did, Jesus was the most humble and, and modest person who's ever lived. When the crowds wanted to enthrone him as king, he slips off to be alone. And we see the same dynamic in Isaiah's servant. The servant is approachable and gentle and kind. He's not about his own self-promotion. He's for the weak and for the broken. These images in Isaiah 42 of the bruised reed and, and the dimly burning wick, uh, these, these couldn't be more striking. You know, a bruised reed, do you, do you get what that is? You know, it's a piece of, of marsh grass that's bent and, and almost broken. You could just brush up against it and it would break away. Just barely hanging on. Or a dimly burning wick. Do you see that picture? It's, it's a candle that is sputtering and it's about to go out. Just blow on it. These are, these are things that require the greatest possible care protection, tenderness, sensitivity. And this metaphor, of course, is, is about an attitude that the servant has towards others. This is the attitude that Jesus embraces towards people like you and me. He, he wants us to know the same love that he shared with the Father. He says in John 17, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. But instead of remaining in the Father's love, so often we're a lot more like Tom Wolfe's Charlotte Simmons. Uh, we look to approval from our friends, our family, our teachers. Uh, we base our self-esteem on our grades or our careers. When things go well for us, we're exalted. And when things go badly, we're destroyed. Henry Nouwen describes how the voice of God competes with so many others in our hearts. He writes, Many voices ask for our attention. There is a voice that says, Prove that you are a good person. Another voice says, You'd better be ashamed of yourself. There also is a voice that says, Nobody really cares about you. And one that says, be sure to become successful, popular, and powerful. But underneath all these often very noisy voices is a still small voice that says, you are my beloved. My favor rests on you. That's the voice we need most of all to hear. 
Jesus knew this voice, and he invites us to hear it and, and to trust in his love. What's holding you back? What's holding you back from, from hearing that voice, from responding to that voice? For some of you here today, there may be an area of your life that God is pressing on. Maybe even right now, you, you know that something is just not right. And he's, he's calling you to repentance, to, to turn back towards his embrace when you've been moving away from it. For others of you, it, it may be that there's something good in your life, a career, a relationship, a, a comfort, but it's become more important than it should. You've taken something good and you've made it ultimate. Or, or you may be deeply involved in the life of our church here, but you're so busy working for God that you've forgotten what it's like to simply be with God, to know his pleasure. You know, our religious efforts sometimes keep us from the love of God most of all. That was the experience of John Wesley, uh, the 18th century pastor and founder of the, the Methodist movement in the Church of England. Before his conversion, Wesley was a deeply religious person. He was the son of a clergyman and a, a clergyman himself. He was orthodox in his beliefs. He was moral. He did good works. He did ministry in prisons, sweatshops, and slums. He gave food, clothing, and education to slum children. He observed both Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath, just to have his bases covered. He, he sailed from England to the American colonies as a missionary. He studied his Bible. He prayed, fasted, and gave regularly. Yet all the time, he was bound in the chains of his own religious efforts because he trusted in what he could do to make himself right before God instead of trusting in what Jesus had done for him. And later, he looked back at his earlier life as a Christian, and he, and he came to a new kind of trust in Christ that went deeper. Yeah, he trusted in Christ, he said, in Christ only for salvation. And he came to an inner assurance that he was now forgiven, saved, and loved. A son of God. And looking back on, on all his religious activity, uh, before he was truly saved, he said, he said this, I had, even then, the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. This is the, the gospel, friends. Jesus became a servant for us so that we might become sons and daughters of God. So, so what we've been saying is that Jesus is, is for the weak, for strugglers, for the bruised reed and, and the dimly burning wick, and the first step of faith is admitting our weakness. That we don't have it all together as much as we like to project to others. That we can be so self-righteous and, and prideful, so critical of others. And, and when you make a confession like this, and you discover that, that God meets you in your weakness. 
He, he can do this, Isaiah says, because where we are weak, he is strong. We falter, but he will not falter. We burn low, but he does not burn low. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Now, immediately I need to pause here because this, this raises really a serious issue here, this verse. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. It, there's, a, there's a problem here about the Christian's claim that Jesus is this servant. Now, you can imagine a first century Jew debating with a Christian about whether uh, or not Jesus was the servant of Isaiah and saying, now didn't Jesus grow faint? Wasn't he crushed on the cross? He can't be the Messiah. And yet just a few chapters later, Isaiah will say about the servant, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. What do we do with this paradox? Well, the answer is found as we consider why Jesus went to the cross, why he was crushed. It, it wasn't because he had to be. It was because he chose to be. The, the cross is the greatest act of sacrificial love the world has ever seen. The cross shows us that the love of God was not just something that Jesus experienced as God's son, God doesn't just tell us that he has this kind of love for us, that we are his beloved. In the person and work of Jesus, God shows us. He reveals that his love is a suffering love and that he will come to you wherever you find yourself. No matter what hole you feel like you're living in, no matter what you've endured from others, no matter what you've done yourself, he loves bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks, no matter how they got that way. When a whole community of people believe that they've been loved like this, it, it's powerful. L let me give you an example. The sociologist of religion, Rodney Stark, at the University of Washington, has studied the early Christian church extensively asking the question, why did the early church grow so quickly uh, in, its, in the first uh, few hundred years uh, when it was still living under the Roman Empire? The, the church was illegal, uh, it was persecuted, it was poor, but it swept the Roman Empire. Well, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, Stark shows that one important reason <clears throat> for the growth of the church was the Christian response to the epidemics that swept the Roman Empire in the second and third and, and fourth centuries. During these plagues, massive numbers of people died. In just one of these epidemics, between 165 and, and 180, a quarter to a third of the Roman Empire uh, died. In just 15 years, can you imagine? And in response, while, while many people uh, who were living through this, they, they would abandon the sick in the cities, and they would, they would seek safety in the countryside, the Christians' response was different. They stayed where they were, and they cared for the ill. 
putting themselves at risk in the process. They, they didn't abandon their own brothers and sisters in the faith, and they also risked their lives to care for their non-Christian neighbors. They simply saw themselves as putting into practice biblical teaching, like, I am my brother's keeper. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's more blessed to give than to receive. To them, this is just what they were supposed to do as followers of Christ. And it had a huge impact on the society of the day. And, and many people, including people who had been sick and cared for and, and brought back to health by Christians, they end up converting to Christianity. How do we know this? How do we know this happened? Well, because the pagans complained about it. Uh, Julian the Apostate, uh, the last pagan emperor of Rome, he wrote this letter to his priests, uh, calling them out on this. Uh, he wrote, uh, these impious Galileans, that's what he called the Christians, these impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also. Welcoming them with their agape love, they attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion uh, have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. That's what he said. They're making us look bad. Friends, hopefully we will not face an epidemic, though we could, or some other disaster. But the calling of Christians is the same. To serve as God has served us in Christ, to, to love as he loves, to give as he gives. And because Christians are, are called to love everyone, absolutely everyone, you can pursue this calling even when you feel misunderstood or you're treated unfairly. You can interact with people who are very different from you, culturally or, or, or ethically, with humility and patience and honesty and respect. If you believe the gospel, you, you won't be defensive because you know that your beliefs and behavior don't make you better than anyone else. You'll be respectful because you know that God, in his common grace, has given all people, not just Christians, insights into truth and goodness and beauty. So you can approach others with curiosity and openness for what they have to teach you. And finally, you will be bold to share the love that is yours in Christ because you know that the words spoken over Jesus belong to you and to whomever God calls. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this picture that we've seen of our Savior. The Savior who comes to those who are weak, uh, those who are broken, those who are lost in uh, their confusion and sin, uh, who are like the bruised reed and the dimly burning wick. And though he comes as the all-powerful and, and glorious one, the creator of the universe and one who is holy in every way, uh, he comes with gentleness and compassion and grace.
We thank you, Lord, uh, for this good news. And we pray that you give us faith to believe it, to trust in the depth of your love, that you love us more than we could ever imagine. And would you uh, allow us to, to love others in the same kind of way? Would you give us your spirit, that we would be gentle and kind to, to each other, that we would be open about our weaknesses, that we would walk in the path of faith that you have set in front of us, and that we would love uh, all those you have put in that path, our friends and neighbors, our family, uh, each person who needs to know that they are made in, in your image, that they are loved by you, and that you have come in the person and work of Jesus to save us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.